everything you'd look for if you're a checkpoint investor is certainly looking good with the probable exception of the competitive marketplace. It's not surprising that, you know, Clavio has, has just turned a profit in the last year and now it's like, all right, well, now we can IPO because I think that's what investors expect now. I don't think they would, the excitement would be there for an unprofitable company coming to the markets. When I realize or I'm told that something was generated with AI, no matter how impressive it is as a product, I devalue it. Hey there, and welcome to Stock Club podcast brought to you by my wall street i'm mike and joining me today's episode is emmett savage from the my wall street analyst team quick word from my friends and sponsors at vodafone business before we get on with the show vodafone have recently launched their vhub digital advisory service offering irish businesses of all sizes free one-to-one digital support and advice you don't even have to be a vodafone business customer to avail of this service search vodafone vhub to book a call with one of vhub digital experts and we will leave a link in the show notes for today's episode emmett how are you welcome to another episode of stock club Thanks, Mike. Good to see you. How are things in France? Things are mighty in France. Uh, do you want to start the episode with a fun fact of the day? Me? A fun no, fact? No, I'm not putting you on the spot. Would you like to hear one? <laughs> I'd love to hear one. I was going to whoa, that's real. Pull the gun, dance. I'm like, oh, uh, <laughs> takes 150 million smarties to fill a bus. Go on, hit me. <laughs> so I think, I'm not sure if this has ever been discussed on Stock Club, but I think we discussed it in my Wall Street at one point. So... The founder of Duolingo invented the CAPTCHA, the I'm not a robot. Here's pick the three photos with the motorbike in it. Oh, I mean, seriously, humanity owes this man a favor for Duolingo <laughs> and, he, and we owe him revenge for that. We really do. And I, actually, I did know that fact because we did Stock Club. We did. We, we spent some time talking about Duolingo and Stock Club a couple of years ago. You weren't on this particular show and it turned into a conversation about how impossible it is to actually get those captures first shot i mean it's not an easy undertaking it's like <laughs> all the pictures with a staircase and they're blurred you're like i can't see i can't see anything well it starts getting existential you're like you know is the base of the staircase or is it just the stairs yes exactly or i see the handle of a bike does that constitute a bike <laughs> at what point are we fully talking about a bike yeah i, I have to say the cap but are they still around do we still do I, you I, see it, it only reminded me because i was signing into a stream here today and it ah. popped up yeah it was on again. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I thought the latest version was you just clicked on a field, a little button that says I'm not a human. And because it knows from the motion of the mouse, uh, it, it kind of puts it doesn't it saves you the misery of having to choose, you know, an elephant out of a matrix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so maybe Duolingo was his gift after giving everyone the horrors of the capture. He owes us one. I, I did my eight, I'm on my 800 day streak on French today. So I'm really glad you raised, raised Duolingo. It allows me to just kind of mention a casual flex there. I've done 800 days. I mean, I haven't done 800 days of anything in a row, except maybe breathe. <laughs> I'm so impressed <laughs> myself. Eat. Is that now a true streak or is that, did you get it's a true streak? A true streak every no, day. Every single day, you name it. And I've had some narrow escapes, but yeah. I was I about to say, do you ever get like a wake up in cold sweats at 11.58 PM and be like, <laughs> I have to go on to Lingo right now? Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's get into the show. So, so IPO season is kind of kicking off really this September. Mm. We talked at length about ARM's Blockbuster IPO and we have come 
and since then have come the public debuts of the grocery delivery app Instacart and marketing company Clavio, which you're going to discuss on today's show. So they were both, I think they were Tuesday and Wednesday of last week, one after the other. So Emmett, do you want to kick us off with Clavio, um, a company I know very little about? So what does it do, first of all? Yeah, I have to admit, I, I hadn't heard of the business until I saw it was lined up for IPO and watched it on the day. But basically, it's a marketing automation platform that helps businesses acquire and retain and grow their customers through things we're all used to, like SMS marketing. And they have this big toolbox of features to help businesses to effectively create and send emails that are more effective, well, they say, than other platforms. Um, so they do things like email segmentation, email automation, so you can lock and load an email to send it at prescribed time, or uh, SMS marketing, which I think certainly in my part of the world and our part of the world, I think, is in SMS marketing. I, I've barely been hit with SMS marketing, a handful no. of them a year uh thankfully and then all the reporting and analytics that goes with it and they do a load of other stuff like crm customer relationship management tools education they just have a toolbox for digital businesses and apparently and this is what really surprised me it's one of the more popular platforms for e-commerce which is a very old world term uh, and it has 130,000 paying customers and I can't believe it's grown the way it has because it has a load of competitors like MailChimp, uh, OmniSend, HubSpot, Intercom. I, no, I was I, about I, to say, should we know it ourselves? <laughs> yeah. How many email clients have we gone through? Yeah, there's uh, Adobe Marketo. Um, we've gone through so many of them. And, and so for me, it seems like a very, very crowded marketplace. So only about nine years ago when my Wall Street had just started, I remember looking up uh, are looking up Urban Airship, which were uh, which was a business at the time for doing exactly what I just described, and and then John, my co-founder, and I were in New York, and there was this giant billboard, like one of these multi-story, multi-building billboards for Urban Airship, which up until that moment I thought was a bit of a niche business, and uh, and the business is now called Airshop. So there's our Airship, I mean, say, and there you go, it's another it's another competitor. And my point is that. This is not a new industry and Clivo are not in a monopoly. They're not even in a duopoly or triopoly or quadopoly or <laughs> sanctopoly. <laughs> Quintopoly. Like they, this to me is like, uh, I was quite surprised at that, that this business suddenly had its moment in the spotlight and it has some very nice numbers too. Yeah. So well, talk me to the IPO first. How did it go for them? Yeah, well, they they priced it. They priced their shares at thirty bucks a share, and they released just over nineteen million shares into the wild for normal folks like you and me to buy, which basically valued the company at just over nine billion dollars on a, on a fully diluted basis, and it raised about three hundred forty five million dollars in cash for the company's bank account. So that's the kind of top line figures. And I think what's particularly interesting is that Shopify owns about 11% of Clivo shares. It invested yeah. one, yeah. Like it so invested a hundred million dollars. This last is year. actually where I first heard about it was Shopify. Is it Shopify Ventures, they call it, their, uh, their private market arm? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is really, that hundred million dollar investment is a testament to their, I suppose, intertwined business models as anything else. And apparently 78% of Clivo's annualized recurring revenue by the end of last year was generated by Shopify clients. So there's okay, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. So Shopify really is 
if you like the the parent and if we were doing a strategic analysis of clivo and we've been doing a lot of talk about this in recent times as we tune our nexus model it's it's you having a single like porter's five forces where you have the bargaining power of a single customer well you know shopify is an ally it owns a hundred million dollars as it was uh, in the business, 11% of the business. Um, so you have to suspect that Shopify's relationship has absolutely driven interest in the business and its IPO. And in fact, I'm quite surprised that Shopify didn't just fully acquire it because this is seems to be, uh, I, I wouldn't say indispensable part of Shopify's um offering but certainly a well integrated part so uh they 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 were interested enough to buy 11 percent a year ago but they allowed it uh go ipo if you will or the, the strategic direction they took was ipo so and we've seen this kind of behavior before yeah it reminds me of a business uh we talked about a while back global e do you remember that i think yes shopify, i remember shopify was a big investor there as well so it's clearly a tactic from them where they get their they get their hooks in across the industry. And I think with providers or people they work closely with. So clearly, and if yeah. you think about it, if you're saying Shopify is driving that much business to, uh, is it Clavio or Clavio? Cl uh, well, the way I've pronounced it is Clavio. Uh, but uh, um, I'd have to speak to the founder to get that kind of tested. Yeah, it probably brings them a bit of solace too. in the fact mm. that you're relying so much on a customer, but now it's not just a customer, it's, a part owner as well. So its interests are tied to yours instead of them going off, investing in competitor, maybe ditching you or even producing your own, pr producing something similar in-house, which they have the scale yeah. and resources to do. So I think the fact that they own a piece must mm. give Clavio a great peace of mind, but also means that Shopify are kind of in tandem with them instead of potentially conflicting. So I think that's very important yeah. for them. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so you mentioned the numbers. Talk to me there. Well, I was really surprised because revenue has just grown in the face of the competition it has over and over, quarter after quarter. There isn't a single quarter where revenue hasn't just smashed the last quarter, not just the same quarter a year ago. So Q2, uh, which ended in uh, January, March, April, May, June, thank you, <laughs> ended in June, uh, they, had, they brought in $585 million in revenue, which was 56.5% growth on uh, the same quarter a year ago. And as I mentioned, 130,000 customers at the end of June. So this is a business that has the momentum we like to see in a business. And clearly, when you take that momentum, when you take the fact that it's profitable, we're now talking about a digital business that has swung from being lossy quarter after quarter after quarter, it, it came in with a net income of just nearly $11 million, which is a really nice turnaround from a loss of just over a million dollars 11 million dollars i mean say in the preceding year so everything you'd look for if you're a checkpoint investor is certainly looking good with the probable exception of the competitive marketplace but again back to your point mike spotify uh is the parent there and if you like or i don't want to say the sponsor they, they don't see themselves as the sponsor or the parent but they're certainly the big sister the big brother they're looking out for for this business and and clearly have chosen this as as the, the preferred partner if you like of uh, all things email and text and all the everything in between yeah it's interesting you talk about profitability there because we're going to get into instacart mm. too and i say it's a prerequisite now if you want to go public for those private yeah. companies. And it's not surprising that, you know, Clavio has, has just 
turned a profit in the last year and now it's like all right well now we can ipo because i think that's what investors expect now and i don't think there'll be i don't think there would the excitement there would would be there for an unprofitable company coming to the markets Completely. It's unbelievable that Instacart and um, uh, Clivio listed within a couple of days of each other. The kind of dynamics of their business are very similar. They both came in onto the market at more or less the same market cap, the same size, very different businesses. And same share price. They both listed at 30 bucks. Really? 30 bucks. And it was around around 9 billion uh, just turned a profit last year. It's mad, actually, the, uh, the similarities. And I don't think that's... I don't think that's by accident. I think it's the same reasoning that right. if you want to go public now, you need to tick these boxes. So, yeah. yeah. Do you know what that reminds me of, Mike? About 20 years ago, uh, Cisco, uh, the Rooters and Gooters guys from San Francisco, um, they had a, a market cap. I don't recall what it was, but let's just call it $20 billion. And the food delivery logistics company, Cisco, spelled <laughs> S-Y-E. Uh, S-Y-S-C-O, I think, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a similar spelling. Um, they're the guys who make sure that a lettuce that's grown in Iowa is on a restaurant uh, table in New York same day. Uh, it was also on one day the exact same market cap. Both of them had a CEO called John Chambers. Both of them had increased revenue by 11% quarter on quarter. Both of them bumped into each other, the two John, John Chambers at a convention. And it was like on Fortune magazine. I'm, I say I'm going back at least 20 years, did, <laughs> did a, a piece on this unbelievable coincidence of That's the two bizarre. sisters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was probably when the rapper Cisco was at his prime as well. Do you know him though? <laughs> you ever heard of the Tommy uh, song? <laughs> oh, I do. Is that his name? Is that Cisco? That's Cisco, yeah. Oh, so there's, yeah. There's the triumvirate there. There we uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm going to get into Instacart now. And we just mentioned the similarities. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting to talk about this because Instacart probably gets a lot more attention than something like Clavio, like me and you had never really heard about yeah. it before it went yeah. public and we started talking about it. Whereas, Instacart, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the product if they're in the States, but even not so, even just hearing the name thrown around, I think it was kind of meant to go public for a very long time and it was humming back and forth mm -hmm. and probably waiting to go profitable, as we mentioned. So um, to give a quick recap of it, it was formed back in 2012 and just think about it as Uber Eats, but for groceries, essentially yeah. doing the weekly shop or picking up a few bits. So it's a mm. grocery delivery chain. It's a gig economy based app, essentially works with major chains like Kroger, Costco. And depending on where you live, I think this service can seem very unnecessary. Do you know, if you live in mm. a small place and you have a car or whatever, it's like, why would I need that? But it's funny if you're from a big city, high-rise apartment with no lift, that kind of stuff, it, it comes a lot more necessary. And then obviously for older people or people with disabilities, this is pretty much a lifesaver. And we've seen grocery deliveries happen all over the world, but Instacart is kind of building out the platform, we'll say. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. It has echoes, Mike, of a, of a local business here that was acquired recently by an Irish supermarket chain called Dunn Stores, and um, who you, of course, are familiar with. And um, yeah, and it, it had called? a mass. It was me, called Buy it? Me. Buy yeah, Me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. I remember that. I think I used it once. 
Oh, so it. it had a massive tailwind during coronavirus, like, and yeah, it's it somewhat, yeah, it's somewhat masked, um, let's say, normal market conditions. It's very hard to read how good is our business doing when everybody has to stay indoors. How did the coronavirus, if you like, surge affect Instacart's business, and how has it settled back down? So this is the interesting part, I think, about Instacart is that. I think at one point there was a quarter where it was going 600% year over year over COVID. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And and I think the whole story around Instacart, and this, it's a very important IPO because it's the first venture-backed American IPO since December 2021, I think. Oh, really? Right. So this is very important for the private markets and for venture capitalists and private companies alike because they're watching to see the reaction on the public markets, how investors are basically treating Instacart to see, well, is it worth for us to IPO? And... Mm. The story goes, so you're mentioning from COVID and beyond. So Instacart raised money in early 2021 at a $39 billion valuation. Wow. It's trading just around nine, I think a little below nine now. Right. So that kind of gives a bit of context into how it's gone. Yes. And it wasn't like any chumps that got in at the $39 billion either. It was big names. So Sequoia Capital, Andreessen Horowitz, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, like, Big Whoa. proper names, Who's and, you can who, yeah. and you can imagine why. Do you know, like, is in it was at the peak of the pandemic. Money was very cheap mm. at the time, anyways. Mm. You're getting a company that's growing six hundred percent. Nothing can go wrong. So it, it was very short termism, I think, but also yeah. I, I nearly like forgive them <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but logistically, sorry, oh, go, sorry ahead, go on. But logistically, just if I can just picture the business, do they simply collect the stuff and deliver it? Or do they go into the supermarket? Do they go into uh, Walmart and walk down the aisles and put stuff in the basket and make sure you got the green bananas as opposed to the speckly ones? Like, uh, how deep into the process are they involved? Yeah, they're the shoppers. You know? So they are the shoppers as so well. That's, so that's the gig uh, workers, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, like, seeing that kind of cut from its previous valuation to now is indicative, I think, of a lot of private market valuations. And I don't think that going from 39 to 9 should put off a lot of investors because Mm. most of all, and this is happening with uh, Instacart as well, is employees are mad to get an exit. So this is actually what happened with this IPO in the sense that only 8% of outstanding shares were floated. And of that 8%, 36% were employees selling off. And there were a right. lot of that was in um, the two founders who aren't leading the company anymore. So it was more a fundraising exercise. It wasn't really a fundraising exercise at all. Yeah, um, right. It was just really and I think to that... allow, allow employees to get some liquidity and ensure the employees would prefer to get some liquidity at $39 billion and sell it in a private round. But that's just not how it works, I'm afraid. But that's interesting because when you look at the Clavio or Clavio IPO and Instacart, I think one of the issues we have as retail investors is that after the company IPOs, there's an information lockup period, which is usually between 90 and 180 days where insiders such as the founders and executives and early investors are prohibited from selling their shares. And the purpose of the information uh, lockup period is to prevent insiders from flooding the market which shares after the IPO, which could, of course, hurt the share price. And the real challenge for you and me and any investor who looks at a business post-IPO is that there's not a, a lot of new information forthcoming. You, you go to their investor relation website, you go to Instacart, 
uh, IR investor relation web. And it, it's, it's, a, it's empty. There's nothing for us to grab onto. If you want to find out the story, you go to the SEC website. Um, and there's incomplete data in FactSet or Yahoo Finance or whatever tool you use to go and inspect a business. And then you kind of, when you get under the hood of the story, you, you find facts like the one you just made there, Mike, which is really, this was uh, primarily motivated. So those who are founders or any investors can get out. And that kind of raises other questions, which you have to wait to see kind of trends and see how, in fact, the business is playing out as a public business. Yeah, but that that employee exit in particular is very important. And he striped mm. had a lot of issues with that, where they were, they, they striped essentially screw the pooch and they missed their opportunity to go public at the right time. <laughs> and they've right. gotten cut in half in the private market since. But a lot yeah. of their a lot of their fundraising events and and uh, funding rounds were to give employees liquidity now because yeah. I think employees have been there for so long and they just they want their payout like it's the reality of it. If yeah. you were employee number nine in Stripe, you're sitting on millions, oh, if not yeah. tens of millions of share Locked options, up. and it's yeah. great to it's great to have that. But you're also you know still a salaried employee. You're That's worth right. X amount, but you're not able yeah. to spend. You're not able to spend that. And I know you can get loans out against it and stuff, but that's for yeah, that's for the billionaires, not for you know the lowly right. millionaires that yeah. strive. Yeah, but, um, yeah, that's true. So yeah. if you were handed a thousand bucks tomorrow by your great auntie and said, "Here, invest that for me," uh, would you would you buy shares on Instacart? Uh, first, I'd be shocked. Auntie Bab came back from the <laughs> dead. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, it's an interesting conversation because I think immediately you see the valuation go from 39 billion to 9 billion yeah. and you think it's a company in decline. And I actually don't really think that's the case. Obviously, it's not growing as fast, but there's yeah. a lot more now compared to two years ago within the business. And a lot of it has come from, uh, well, there's two factors. One is that it's actually held on to the market share claim during the pandemic. So like you, assume that, you would assume that it would be a big perfect parabola here i am describing a graph now Emmett. i know that's your thing but the dip <laughs> would come after but it's actually kept a lot of those gains and maintain them so 74 percent of sales greater than 75 dollars on a uh, third-party grocery delivery app are still instacart and 56 percent of sales less than 75 um and it's done this while turning a profit, which is the important thing. It's what we mentioned. So I think it's five consecutive quarters of profitability, mm. which mm. I wouldn't really see. I don't. I I came into this with kind of an open mind because I do not like gig economy companies. I don't like their business mm. models per se. Mm. But what it's done is um, what it's done is it brought in the CEO Fiji Simo. Uh, she came from Meta. And basically what she did was she built out the advertising platform. And this was always a tactic from the, C, uh, from the founder where they said, once we reach a level of scale, we can build an advertising platform on this. And we've seen this when Amazon is a perfect idea. Like Amazon is like one of the third or fourth biggest advertisers now, just mm. because the marketplace is there and it's so scalable and it, and it works. And Instacart has actually achieved this. So I think um, she came in in she came in in 2021, and the advertising is making up a third of revenue now and almost the majority of profits. 
so to kind of tack on this high margin revenue stream has really transformed the business, I'd say. And I think that's why they kind of, that's why they went public is because, well, no, we're not just another DoorDash or Uber Eats. We actually have a very functioning business here and we're profitable and we're, and we're able to bring in that high margin revenue that people are looking for instead of just the growth that was there for gig economies and probably isn't there anymore. But so would you drop a grand on it? No, not, ah. not, not at all. So mm. that, I was going to say that's the good part, but the not so good part. I think mm. in general, there's a reason why I don't like gig economy workers. And I just, I think there's no moat there at all. Yes. Oh, there's none. There's no. none. Who's the lift to their Uber as it were? Who's the second biggest name? Cause Instacart is one of just been broadly aware of is, the, is there, is there a B player? Yeah, well, DoorDash and Uber Eats both. Oh yeah, DoorDash and right. Uber Eats both do uh, groceries, groceries as well. But again, okay. do you remember I said, you know, the big shop and the small bits. There's the difference there. So like, yeah. orders of over seventy five Instacart still has seventy four percent of market share, and it's fifty six percent of the under seventy five, so the lower bits. But yeah. the big question here. So first of all, Instacart's uh, customer concentration. They have 43% of its volume comes from just three retailers. All right. Uh, so what happens if one of these businesses decides maybe we launch our own delivery service or mm-hmm. at, at the at the very least, you know, what we contribute 20% of sales to this company, we can really lean on them and get a discount and all the rest. And like mm-hmm. launching their own delivery service isn't out there at all. Target owns its own. I think it's called Shipped. Amazon has it with Whole Foods. Uh, Walmart has its own delivery as well. Kroger has its own delivery service as well. So you're almost, and we t- this is kind of the inverse of what we talked about with Shopify, where with Shopify, it's great that their biggest customer became an investor because they're not competing against them anymore. Whereas now mm-hmm. the potential for Instacart's customers to turn into competitors in a second is very, very quick. And in a market or an industry with razor thin margins like groceries and stuff, I, it just does not, it doesn't seem too tenable for me long-term. I mm. think every kind of management structure will come in and say, all right, well, how do we cut margins? Where are we spending money? Why are we giving Instacart X amount? Instacart's take rate is like 7%. Let's get it to 4% for us. Or we go with another company or we do it ourselves, you know? And if, Kroger or Costco or whoever decides to do it themselves, they could charge no delivery fees because they're, mm. they don't need to make money off the delivery fees. They make money off the products. So mm-hmm. yeah, that would be my big, big kind of red flag there where I just, I'd, I'd share that concern. I mean, I think most people would say whether they get in an Uber or a Lyft or a free now, if you're in Europe, uh, is of little consequence to them once they get there safely and the, the car is clean and the price is broadly acceptable and it's the same for when you get a delivery you don't care who does it you don't care what company did it um and i think when you think of that there's no end point customer loyalty i believe unless they have this magnificent technology platform that nobody else can replicate which of course we both know is not the case so i'd be with you too i wouldn't be overly keen on it if i had to choose between the two businesses we just discussed i would go with uh clavio yeah clavio. For sure. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, um, this was way back in the prime Uber and Lyft uh, venture capital days where you'd have both on your phone, 
you yeah. use Uber for a couple of weeks and then Lyft would realize yeah. you haven't used it for a couple of weeks. They'd send you an email. You've got discount for however long you'd use Lyft and then Uber would realize you wouldn't have used it for a while and they'd email you the discount. It was nuts. We were driving around with the personal chauffeur on San Francisco's, <laughs> San Francisco's venture capitalist money. So, yeah. Oh, interesting. The yeah. war between those two companies is something I'm sure that's been well documented. Uh, but I, there were some very dirty tactics at the time. You might remember where if you canceled a lift right up until they arrived at your door, there was no fee. And as far as I know, uh, Uber got up to some uh, dirty tactics on that front to yeah. to kind of fatigue the other player. But anyway, look, we're drifting. Yeah, so Instacart is a thumbs sideways to thumbs down. Is that right? Thumbs pretty down. I think it's done a mm. lot. I think the CEO seems interesting with the advertising and stuff. But yeah, it wouldn't be for me. And as well, they're saying for the first six months of 2023, or maybe the most recent quarter, uh, volume is flat year over year so right it's okay, also no slowing point. down on top of all of that apart from the yeah. kind of systemic risks and the no moat we mentioned yeah there, there's also operational risks happening as we see it so i wouldn't touch yeah. instacart personally um clavio yeah. does seem interesting again a lot of competitors but it seems to be doing something right Mm, mm, true and I, I would share your worries though because all those competitors they're going to put their best foot forward as they get ready for ipo um and hence swinging from a, a lossy position to a profitable position but i would certainly give it a few more quarters before i get too excited about it being a partner of shopify and it having grown revenue at a very impressive rate i'd like to see it just continue for four more quarters while they exist in the post ipo world yeah okay so neither of us with raging buys from those two but uh that's okay that's how it goes sometimes yep um all right so if you are like listening to us you're going to love reading from us we are delivering to your inbox one of the most unique products on the market and it's completely free no one else is covering the markets we cover with charging first where we deliver to you a new weekly stock pitch that could be from amsterdam tokyo paris or somewhere in between so that's a completely free stock pitch every week you'll have it read in about 30 seconds flat and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you which is where you get an edge sign up now in the show notes for this episode Emmett, was this week's company new to you it was new to me and in fact to you i was just as you were talking there thinking charging and fearless i believe delivers the highest level of free value for stock investors that i've ever seen now i am biased of course i am um but i think it is an amazing publication it asks nothing of you except just to sign up um so yeah well done it was a brand new company was it new to you as well i was very very familiar with its with its output anyways i didn't know it was a public company but ah, yeah. okay right yeah say no more let let the listeners get intrigued enough to sign up <laughs> all right um <laughs> let's finish off with some big deal or no big deal now uh crowdstrike was very busy this week it had a new acquisition i think it did another one of its uh research reports where it got 100 percent and everything and bet all the competition and everyone decided it was the best cybersecurity dude in the world but i want to yeah. talk about its uh, investor event so i think it's called foul.con yeah. investor briefing whatever it is but basically it just to everyone's um delight up updated short and medium term targets uh so it's committed to gap profitability this year it's upping its EBITDA margin target and its gross margin target and it also set a long-term goal of 10 billion in ARR over the next five to seven years 
Uh, big deal or no big deal, Emmett? It's a big deal, Mike. Definitely, it's a big deal. I mean, as you said, it's going to achieve gap profitability this year, increase EBITDA margin from 21 to 30%. That's massive. Uh, increase subscription gross margin target from 79.5% to 83.5%. And as you said, achieve 10 billion in annual recurring revenue in the next five to seven years. I mean, this is an announcement from a business that has such confidence and strength from the quality of their product. It's, 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 it's effectively, to, to my ears, it's saying that they are... They expect to be the Microsoft of endpoint security and all things cybersecurity. This business has really, really got it right. And I think it's a wonderful business. And like an even a margin of 30% would be very high for a cybersecurity company. And it basically says to me that CrowdStrike is an extremely efficient business. And in a world now where every type of business is vulnerable to some kind of crypto attack, uh, casinos in Vegas and uh TV studios like in the morning show, <laughs> um, <laughs> or the Apple's latest show. You know, when you have a big business that has been utterly hijacked, like um, was it the MGM? MGM, yeah. But even the doors of the rooms wouldn't open. It uh, sounded every... like complete chaos. Can you imagine? And if you have an exec committee and every member of staff for their personal communications have been compromised and you bring in that human element so not only the business element where you have thousands of irate regular customers your casino floor has sat down and your private messages are now in the hands of someone they say pay us to pick a number 50 million dollars when cyber i mean say when crowdstrike walk in and go hey we can protect you for five million dollars a year I'm it's like, I mean, it's like selling, you know, candied kids. It's just yeah. going to happen. They're going to sell it, especially when their product is proven. And I'm taking their good word for this as the best. So I, I think it's a big deal. But what do you think? Yeah, I'm actually really impressed by the gross margin target. So they're basically yeah. cutting cost the revenue by about 20%. Yeah. Which, you know, it's not that it's not in your control, but it's, it's it's more it's almost more impressive to me than any of the other stats there because it just yeah. seems the confidence to say that first of all they obviously have That's a fair right. idea that it's achievable but then yeah. imagine if uh we're talking about grocery stores there like is in imagine if Kroger was like yeah we're going to cut it cut our cost of revenue by 20 percent in the next two three years people will go mm. nuts and i know it's a different animal yeah. altogether and we're talking software and everything else but yeah and so I, i've always been impressed by this business and i think the need is there, obviously, as you mentioned, um, but how it operates, I really like the CEO, George Kurtz. Um, yeah. I love I love when businesses do those kind of long-term North Star targets. It's yeah. like, yeah, 10 billion in seven years. We'll probably yeah. get there earlier, but, you know, everyone is kind of attached to that now. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm very impressed by CrowdStrike. I mean, you think of, I know, not to overlabor the point, but when you think of the gross margin target of 83.5%, that is so elite. You really only see it in software businesses that have developed something that just isn't available elsewhere, or breakthrough drugs and pharma companies that have basically smashed through and developed something new to cure something horrible. Um, but those type of gross margins are just unbelievable. Um, so yeah, big fan. Right, Mike, I have one for you. The writer's strike that brought Hollywood to a standstill looks to be up. Big deal or no big deal? 
Yeah, big deal if it if it goes through. And um, it's a funny story to research because almost every headline has the word tentative in uh, yeah. in air quotes. And I just I, I'm reading it as they come to a tentative deal. You know, don't get too excited. It's tentative yeah. so far. We're nearly friends. But we're nearly friends, exactly. So I'm not sure how much confidence it inspires. Uh, but it should it should be good news for for the studios, of course, but like us, the viewers as well. We haven't really yeah. felt it yet, but you know the downstream effects of this are kind of you know. Well, you remember I, it was a long time ago now. It was good, maybe fifteen years ago, um, and there's like a list of movies and TV shows that were made awful basically by the last writer strike. Um, so it was there was a Daniel Craig James Bond movie, which is like one of the worst James Bonds that was written during the writer's strike or wasn't edited because of the writer's strike. Do you remember that? Oh, really? Solace? No, oh yeah, actually I didn't, I wasn't aware of that fact. And, yeah. um, so it's his only I, really I bad one. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or do you remember that TV show heroes? Uh, I am aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently that completely fell off a cliff from like season one to two or two to three or something. And that was because the writer's oh, strike really? as well. So they basically made oh, it interesting while writers are striking. And I think they couldn't go back and do edits or, very constricted and they put out terrible product basically but um to the current writer strike so it was almost five months 146 days i think they were striking and the deal there's no real um details that have come out yet now i fear they might come out between recording and publishing this podcast which usually happens on stock club but for now they haven't come out um so the deal needs still needs to be kind of voted on ratified mm. by its members but I think there would need to be some serious kind of coup for it to be turned down. Um, we don't know the details, but the three main tenets of the deal were based on protections against AI in writing, which you can imagine writers mm -hmm. would be vehemently against, uh, residual payments on streaming platforms, and then staffing minimums for writers' rooms. So what was happening a lot with streaming was that say a writer's room would go from 10 to four and they would only need, a, they would they'd just cut costs basically by not hiring enough people essentially. And that would obviously affect everyone in the industry. Um, so the representatives from the writer's guild said that, and this sounds a bit like Donald Trump, this deal is exceptional, meaningful gains, protection for writers in every sector of the membership. <laughs> Um, so we, we have just lost listeners with one impression <laughs> we've lost listeners and we've gained a few so that's okay so uh <laughs> so you can imagine that they've kind of touched on all those three i've heard that the ai point in particular was their last obstacle um so i'm not sure i'd say I imagine there's a big compromise there for what actually happens but yeah that's that's kind of hmm. the gist of it now um do you remember this is couple of weeks ago aaron paul uh, so jesse from breaking bad oh yeah he came, he came out and said that he doesn't receive any uh residuals from breaking bad on netflix that kind of no, took me that. took me for a shock so i was yeah. thinking about it especially in through the guise of the streamers um maybe everyone but netflix because netflix are very profitable but all the rest of them are hemorrhaging money and trying to cut down costs and and turn their streaming services profitable so I wonder how much this will this agreement will eat into their bottom lines and will it be enough to even raise the question whether they should keep doing it or not? Do you know what I mean? Like mm, Apple TV yeah. or Amazon Prime who are 
burning cash. Disney Plus is burning cash. And they're like, well, now we've got the, all these additional costs as well. So how does that affect things? So I'm, I'm just I'm mm. curious what the long term effects will be for this. And Netflix, too. You know, this has to affect profitability in some way because they've just added basically a new line item mm. of costs. So, yeah. 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 And it's funny when you think about the like the inevitability of the application of AI into any thought-led profession. Um you you have to wonder are those writers committed to not using AI on the QT at home when they're writing up a new script? I don't believe for a minute they're not. So you know you're kind of opposed to a technology uh disrupting you or, or, or moving your cheese when in fact there's probably a high degree of, of certainty they're using it you know on, on the yeah. burner laptop. Well, there's, a, there's a lack of understanding as well remember the actors are still striking so i know they went in they went they started striking in sympathy with the writers but mm. they haven't come to an agreement yet i think a lot of the stuff was very similar uh so mm. i imagine they'll follow suit but i think actors were very um wary about ai being used to like recreate likenesses and stuff. Yeah. And whether yeah. they would own the rights to their own face nearly in certain mm. in certain situations. Mm. And like it's it's weird to think about they're striking against something that no one really knows how it's going to be applied yet. They just know it's the kind of boogeyman in the room a bit. Mm. You know? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I was it Bruce Willis who recently f was the first actor to sign a deal to say that his face is going to be used in a movie and his likeness and it's going to be generated with AI. So really? it's kind of showing, oh yeah, so I think there's um, the thin end of the wedge is there already. But for me as, an, as a just a human being, when I, when I realize or I'm told that something was generated with AI, no matter how impressive it is as a product, I devalue it. 100%. So if someone said this piece of art was done by uh, artificial or generative AI, I go, mm, okay, fine. Well, you know, what is the purpose of art? Well, as far as I know, it's to show you something that otherwise you wouldn't have seen or to show you something in a light that otherwise you wouldn't have seen it in that light. Um, so that's its purpose. But the fact that it's human created um brings a far, far deeper meaning. And when you apply that to writing or you apply that to anything that is human brain led, you kind of, for me, it's a, it, it, AI, as much as it bolsters it, if it's something to be admired and absorbed, it is devalued when you realize it's AI. And that's just my kind of feeling on the subject, but that doesn't mean it's going to stop it. Oh, that's a fact for sure. Like then if you're mm. ever reading something, you can tell you can tell when it's not human written or if, if that even yeah. feeling if that feeling even creeps up on you you look out for it then as well and it yeah completely completely agree devalues it i'm a huge queen fan as you well know and uh TikTok identified this and started to give me uh songs by the beatles sung by freddie mercury so it gave me a version of imagine sung by an ai freddie mercury a magnificent song sung by a magnificent singer but it was all wrong. It didn't work for me. The fact that it wasn't Freddie Mercury and the fact that it, or, and it wasn't John Lennon, um, it just was broken. It was like interesting. I looked at it and went, that's interesting, but it didn't have that deep emotional root that goes back to for people standing in studio recording either Imagine or Don't Stop Me Now. And that kind of is, is for me like where AI just kind of breaks the magic. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 
it's scary what's on the horizon i think when it comes mm. to when it comes to entertainment and stuff i really don't know what will happen but uh but we will see okay uh before we finish up the show i just want to give a quick word to our friends and sponsors of vodafone business uh they recently launched their vhub digital advisory service offering irish business of all sizes free one-to-one digital support and advice you don't even have to be a vodafone business customer to avail of this service just search Vodafone VHub to book a call with one of their digital experts, and we will leave a link in the show notes for today's episode. All right, that's it for today's show, Emmett. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. If you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review or send us on to some of your friends. Thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.